Father, we, uh, again, thank you because you've extended grace again. Every breath is mercy, grace, a gift. I don't deserve to be up here. None of us deserve to be here worshiping freely. So for that, we give you praise and thanks that you have allowed us to gather and to lift our voices to the one true kin. Father, we pray for those that are being persecuted right now. We pray for the persecuted church across the globe. It is your church. They're your people. Father, I just pray that you will comfort them with the truth that it is worth it. One day it will end. And one day they'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray for the family from our church that right now is in South Asia for the next 10 days. And we pray that you will encourage them. Father, encourage them to be a display of your glory and a proclamation of your glory. I pray for the community right behind us, Barksdale, where last week there was a shooting. I I pray, God, that in dark places that we, as your church, may be light right here in our backyards to the ends of the earth. We thank you for, again, an opportunity to dive into your word and see your heart for us and for those that are not in the pen yet. So now I ask that you remove me, that you empty me. May I decrease so that you may increase and may you get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Dean, did you put these up here? There's a time of when to stop. (laughs) Wow, okay. Got it. I'm picking up what you're putting down. All right. Well, I'm so glad you're here this morning, and what a joy it is to just stand here and and be able to dive with you into God's Word. And um, I I just pray that uh, you will hear what God wants to tell you. Um, I, I don't ever get tired of speaking on grace. I, I sometimes sound like a broken record when it comes to grace, but um, I, I just believe that I need a constant reminder that God's grace is the anchor of our faith. And as we get to the end of the year, and there's three days left in, in 2019, and January 1st is approaching, the thought of many of us is to turn right into 2020, right? We start thinking about next year, and whether you are one of those that loves New Year resolutions or not, um, we all have the tendency at this time of the year to kind of sit back also and reflect on this past year. And for some of you, for some of us, uh, 2019 was a, a year of renewed strength. It was a year 
a season of soaring with the promises of God as the wind beneath your wings. For, for others, it was a hard year. You had a season of a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And the promises of God may, may even seem far and distant, maybe even doubtful. Or, or maybe you're here in a, in a crowd of this size, maybe you're here and you still have no clue why you're here, but you're here. And you have no clue what I'm talking about regarding the promises of God. You, you've never had to trust in the promises of God because you're not a follower of Christ. So right now you're like, what are you talking about? Well, if that's you, I just want to let you know that we are so glad you're here today. We are. No matter where you fall within those three, I just want to tell you we are so glad you're here today. Because today's message is just a basic, simple message of grace. And I hope it is for you. And like I said, I don't know about you, but I need a constant reminder that God's grace is the anchor of my faith. Because if, if I'm not anchored by the amazement of his grace, it will become very hard for me to continue believing in his promises. The Reformed preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Dean, I have no clue what I'm doing here. Okay, here it is. It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace and ends with grace. If you are a reader and you want to dive a little deeper into a good resource in Isaiah, um, I've been here with Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the all-sufficient God. And these are some of his work from Isaiah chapter 40. Um, but I encourage you to grab that book. It's, it's a really, really good book. And he goes through all 31 chapters. So, again, the all-sufficient God, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, I believe that this is the reason that we've heard before and is a good reminder that the ultimate test of the Christian faith will be the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. And I'll add to that 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 measure includes also in the middle of warfare, in the middle of hardship, in the middle of battle. It doesn't matter, which is what I love about the Bible, that it doesn't matter where you open the Bible to, endless grace has always been God's message throughout the entire scriptures. As a matter of fact, you, you only have to start reading in, in, in Genesis. And as you start in, in the early chapters of Genesis, you discover that it was God's initiative to save fall, fallen uh, human beings. The moment that Adam sinned, God came to him and said, in spite of this, I am going to do something about it. And that's a beautiful message because that's the message you and I need to hear over and over and over. And he, and he gave a promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And he continued his, to send his messengers. As you read through the Old Testament, the promise is kept before God's people, always. 
He continually sent his messengers out with one great message that he himself is pledged to redeem and rescue his people. If that doesn't make you want to jump up, we need to talk. Because let me tell you, there is no greater message that you and I could hear than the message that the God we've rebelled against says, I still love you and I still want to rescue you. You and I still want to comfort you. The very God whom people insulted, you and I, and the very God whom people rebelled against is so concerned about his people that he himself did the only thing that could be done to comfort his people. So here's, here's my simple aim this morning. My aim this morning is I just hope that his message of comforting grace uh, may encourage you and encourage me to continue building our lives on the everlasting promises of God. We need to build our lives on the everlasting promises of God so that in those moments of weakness, in those moments of weariness, you and I may cry out with great confidence and abide to the words of Isaiah when he says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. If you guys can help me back there, I'm not sure what it's doing here. All right, so I invite you this morning, we're gonna dive into Isaiah chapter 40. So if you bring your Bibles, or if you have the phone, it's gonna be up on the screen. But I invite you this morning to turn with me and feast from the promises of God in Isaiah 40, which in my opinion actually is one of the most eloquent and moving chapters in the Bible. Uh, in this chapter, we find this beauty to the language. It's like this poetic dance. You know, it, it, it's this beauty to the language. We find this beauty to the flow of expression. And it goes back and forth between the power and holiness of God. Very clear. The power and holiness of God. He is a God of justice. And then into the tenderness and comfort of God, a God of rescue. As a matter of fact, during the Reformation, Martin Luther said that this section of the book is like dancing with the promises from God. And it's really cool. It really, it really is. If you have time, read through Isaiah chapter 40. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to do it. And as God provides another opportunity for you and I to study the, words of God, the, the word of God again, then my hope is to return back to Isaiah 40 and continue dancing with you through this chapter. All right? So before we dive in, I have to give you a little background. Because Isaiah 40 can be a little intimidating. Let me give you a little background. The book of Isaiah is the fifth longest book in the Bible. It's composed of 66 chapters, and it's actually the introduction to what the Bible calls the prophetic, the 17 prophetic books of the Bible. Now, if that terminology is new to you, the Old Testament uses three Hebrew terms that have been translated into the English word prophet. The first one you see here is Jose. To see, it means to Someone that is a counselor, an advisor, someone who has insight. The second word you see here is row. To perceive. 
It's one who envisions and is a revealer of secrets. And the third one, which is the most commonly or the most frequently used, is Nabi. And it means to announce. Someone who declares, who puts forth, who pours forth the declaration of God. Now, the prophet Isaiah was a man that had been taken hold of by God. He was a man that was inspired by God. A man that was given the immediate purpose to give a message from God. But when you first glance at the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters can be a little bit intimidating. Again, the fifth longest book. So when you start browsing through, you're like, whoa, 66 chapters. So I, I believe the book is much easier to understand if, if you realize or if you were to break it down in just two major sections. The first one is chapters 1 through 39, which is the messages of judgment. So in this section, the messages were given to Isaiah beforehand so that he may see what was going to happen to this rebellious nation. As a matter of fact, they were going to suffer and that they would be conquered and that they would be carried away in captivity to a place called Babylon. Then we get to the second section, which is chapters 40 to 66. And this section is messages of hope for the nation after judgment. The prophet receives another message. From God that the people will be rescued, that they will be delivered from their captivity, and that they will be restored to their country, to their city of Jerusalem. And here, we begin to see, we begin to notice the change of tone in the message from confrontation to assurance. So chapter 40 is the beginning of this section of hope and why this morning's text begins as it does. Isaiah 40, chapter 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort my people, says your God. I believe that it was very clear that the first great reality, there's going to be three great realities of the two verses we're going to look at tonight, today that I just want to point out. So I believe that the first very clear Reality that God wanted his children of Israel to see through his message is that this is God's message. What they were hearing from chapter 1 through chapter 66, God was not absent. This whole story of judgment and redemption, the whole story was God's message so he focuses now Isaiah in this new chapter of hope and he wants to be very clear that this message is from God and I love how majestic this second book of Isaiah begins because he typically prophecies will begin with with symbolic visions as we read through through the scriptures but here the ear takes the place of the eye and instead of forms and flashing lights, the prophet hears words. Very unique. He hears words. Now, as we read, we know very clearly that the first words here are God's words. And they're addressed to the prophet. And the keynote of the whole message sent primarily to Israel, that even though their sinful choices brought about a lot of pain in their lives, their decisions to turn back from what God 
was saying or telling to do. Those choices have, caught, have brought a lot of pain in their lives, and God was still not finished with them. So again, God was saying, although you chose to rebel, I'm still not finished with you. He is a merciful God who is, was ready and is ready to strengthen them and to strengthen you and I for the purpose he has assigned them and us in our lives. But here's the thing, because some people may look at Old Testament scriptures, and I mean, I, I've had the conversation with my fa- people in my family, extended family. Um, they, they make the mistake of concluding that the message in Old Testament, that this message in Isaiah chapter 40 is only relevant to the assumed audience it was for, with no application for us today. Now, the entire book of Isaiah has major significance in your life and my life today. Major. Because it addresses all the people of God until Christ returns. So we can't skip Old Testament The book of Isaiah actually provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. It includes the full scope of Jesus' lives. It it, it tells us in Isaiah 7, his virgin birth. In Isaiah 40, the announcement of his coming. In Isaiah 61, the proclamation of the good news. In Isaiah 52 through 53, his sacrificial death. In Isaiah 60... His return to claim his own. So let, let's, let me also add on to it. Let me also note that, let me connect it, that the very verses from this chapter today and others in this chapter are also quoted in the New Testament. Actually, in the, three, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So why is it important for me to tell you that? Why is it important for us to know that? Why is it important to emphasize that? It's because... From Old Testament to New Testament, Scripture makes it perfectly clear that over and above the immediate reference to the children of Israel, we also have here a marvelous foreshadowing and indication of the promises of God that are to come to us in Christ Jesus. And we need to hear it. There is a personal, infinite, eternal Loving, holy God who made this universe and everything in it to reflect his glory, his greatness, his beauty, his power, his wisdom, his justice, and his mercy. This is the God, the creator who had no beginning and who depends on nothing or no one. And we get this from the first four words in the scriptures. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. I mean, he could have stopped right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this message of comfort, of salvation, is entirely and altogether from God. It is his acting. It is his activity in our lives. And this great, personal, eternal God made you and made me to know him and to enjoy him and display him to the world. we see that there's an increasing challenge of 
a misunderstanding in today's world of the character of God and the being of God. And if we don't get that right, we just won't be able to get anything else right about God. It ain't our story. It's his story in our lives. His story. So the prophet Isaiah proclaims God's message in Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 by saying, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for what? My glory, whom I have formed and even whom I have made. If we have a corrupted view of God, then we can begin to think that we play a part in this story called life. And what happens is that we begin to act and say certain things that we don't realize that we're talking about the creator as his creation. You, we got to stay rooted in the promises of his word. Because here's what happens. This is a cry out from Isaiah. This is God's message through Isaiah. And although their unbelief had brought them so low. I mean, their unbelief brought them low, as low as they can go. And God still identifies with his people. And you may be here this morning. And you may be thinking, there's just no way. You have no clue what I've done. And you may be in the category of people that view God as something that you take a part of an action into and people pray and people come to church and people even do great things as an act of doing something to gain God's love. And, and you're missing the whole message of comforting grace. You're missing it. It is in our unbelief that we get so low and away from God that he still says, I still love you and identify with you. You are still my people and I am your God. Though their sinful choices brought about a lot of pain in their life, God was not finished with them, and he's not finished with you and with me. So praise be to God. The exiles are still his exiles. Those that are running away, the sheep that are still out of the pen, are still his sheep. And the one who has hidden his face from the people of Israel for so long is still their God. It would be his message, and God wanted to be so clear in Isaiah 1 2, that it would be his message with which the silence and sadness of exiles would be broken. His message. 
It will be his message that will offer everyone, past, present, and future, the true alternative to the false appearances and remedies that this world offers. And he comforts them by assuring them, you are my people, and I am your God. He is a merciful God who is ready to strengthen them and strengthen us for the purpose he has assigned us to. So the first great reality from this verse is that it is God's message sent to us so that we may come to know him, enjoy him, and be a display of his glory. And church, that message was true then and is true today. It's true today and it should bring great joy to us. Because sin may may separate us from God but it does not separate him from us. It doesn't. And in the inmost meaning of God's voice is ever comfort. Come for my people. Come for my people. Which leads us to the second reality that I see in the scriptures. We have to look at, there's this great message that says, number one, this message is God's message. In spite of where you've been or what you've done, it's my message to you. And the second thing is, we got to look at the condition to whom the message is addressed. Now, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So three words stick out when we look at this side of the condition of these people, why they needed to hear the message. The three words are, again, warfare, iniquity, and sins. Now, the object of the Bible, the object of God's message to his people is that it will give us knowledge, awareness of God, that we may see ourselves as we are, that we may see our need for him, and that we may accept what he has already done for us. Now, if the purpose of our existence we just said is to know and enjoy and reflect the glory of God, then what is sin? then sin must be what? The opposite, right? Failure to do that. Missing the mark, as we've heard. Okay? And the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 3.23. And he just loves all of us so much, he didn't want to leave anybody out. And he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like, if you were in doubt, he answered that for us. All have sinned. There is nothing you and I could ever do to be right with God, ever. If that's the case, if we think we can do something right, good enough to be right with God, we will be exiles for the rest of our lives because we'll be missing the mark and missing the message that God has for us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the condition to whom the message is addressed are what? Sinful people living in their iniquity and in warfare. Now, what is warfare? Warfare is a place of hardship, a place of battle, 
It is a time of hardship. It, it is an unpleasant place. Now, uh, let me ask you this question. If, if the condition of the people this message is sent through or sent for and to, then we must realize that we're also are a part of that because Paul just helped us see that all have sin. And when we look at warfare, then we have to see warfare. We have to see the condition of who we are as sinful, broken people in a broken world. There is a warfare that ends the moment I proclaim Christ as Savior and Lord of my life. There's a warfare that ends instantly. God says, you're justified because of the blood of Christ. But it doesn't remove us from the overall warfare that we have to live in also. It's a broken place. So let me ask you. Let me give an example. How are all your relationships? Any warfare? Do you ever yell at your kids? Daddy of the year? Do you ever say mean things to your wife? Liz is here. She rose her, she rose her hand. Yeah. <laughs> warfare. Does your wife ever say something bad about you? Warfare. Relationship. Parenting. Relationships at work. Addictions. Depression. Just hard things that are a result of broken people in a broken world as a matter of fact let me give you an example last night I'm, I, this week I'm in a direction of the message in a different way I was going to start with the last verse verse 31 and kind of work ourselves up through the middle and then I started going oh, I don't know maybe maybe I should go a different direction you just start with the basis of one and two and then slowly work through the whole chapter with time so I started typing a different message and last night about 11 30 I asked Liz Hey, baby, what do you think? Read it. And she reads it and she went, eh. <laughs> Warfare. It's 1130 at night. I need encouragement. Broken people. In a broken world, she is my best critic. Couldn't do it without her. But there's warfare. There's warfare. And I want you to notice the warfare is against who? Ultimately, against God. Because I want you to see here. Notice two things about sin. When we see here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So sin is about everybody, all. And sin is about the glory of God. All of us have sinned. No exception, we fall short, but sin is mainly to do with our relationship to God, not as much as a relationship to others. Yes, our sin, like we just said, our actions, our words do hurt people, and we're guilty of that. But that's not the reason why sin is evil. The main reason why sin is evil is, is that God is worthy of our trust and obedience and worship and our joy and we choose to neglect him in sin. 
Therefore, our neglect of God is a great evil and we're guilty of sin in his presence. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. So we are under, all of us, the sentence of God's eternal judgment and we will all perish unless God himself provides a redeemer to save us from our sin and from his wrath. Which leads us to the third and final reality. The message is from God. The condition to whom the message is addressed is number two, sinners, us, in warfare, and the central focus of the message. So we have this message from God to his people, and then he wants to be clear what this message is about, what we must proclaim. So the central focus of the message, let's go back to Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So now in this section, we see that the three words here that stick out when it comes to God's message and his action is that it's ended, it's received, it's been pardoned. Now, notice here, ended means it's complete, not lacking anything. He says, it is done with. And because everything about this completion is about me, then I can provide pardon. You may receive it. And here... Receiving from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. I personally don't really think that he's talking about only about uh, you sin greatly, so your judgment was greatly. As much as he's saying where there is sin, grace abounds even greater. So let my people know that they have received because I have pardoned them. They have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. Forgiveness for all their sins. Pardon from their sins beyond what you, cannot, you and I can measure. Jesus Christ is the central focus and the central character of our history. He's the Holy One of Israel. The one who is high lifted up and who dwells down among the, the lowly. He's the sovereign one over the world whose wrath is fierce, but whose cleansing touch atones for our sin. He's the one whose salvation and mercy flows in endless supply for you and me. He's the one whose gospel is good news of joy. And he's moving history towards the blessing of his people and the worship that he is due. He is the only savior and the whole world will know it. That's the central message of Isaiah 1 and 2. John 1, 1, 3. So I, I try to connect it back to the New Testament or forward. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
And then John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Then he is high lifted up and says, but I love my people. I need to come from my people. And the only way to do that is to come low and leave glory of being on the throne and, and leave the heavens and say, I love them too much to leave them that way. So I'm not only going to proclaim it as God. I'm going to show you by sending my son Jesus and act on my promises. That is the biggest difference in our faith as Christians. And no other religion has their God proclaimed something and then acted on it in that way. So God wanted to make sure that we knew he meant what he meant when he said in the Old Testament, coming to the New Testament, that I will pardon. And it is complete. All you got to do is receive it. Receive it. Isaiah 53.6. But before I get there, I love the fact that Jesus is the son of God, eternal, without beginning, but with the Father from everlasting to everlasting, truly God. He is God. And yet, as we saw, he was made flesh. That means he was, became human. And we got to ask, let's always test. We got to ask, but why? Other religions are asking why. We need to also have an explanation for that. Why? Why did Jesus have to become human? And the answer to that is without human nature, he just wouldn't be able to die. He, he couldn't die by staying in heaven, by staying in glory, by staying on the throne. He became human so that he would be able to die. Jesus had one goal and one goal only, and that was to glorify the Father in coming to die. He lived to die. So let's ask again, why? But why? Which is a question we also get when we cross the pond into other nations. You really think that God would send his son to die? What kind of God is that? So we got to answer that why. We got to have an answer for that. We got to be ready for that one. Why would God send his son to die? Because God's heart towards you and towards me and towards all broken people is not only wrath that flows from his justice. We see that in the first 40 chapters, 39 chapters. It's not only wrath flowing from his justice, but also mercy that flows from his love. That's why his son had to die. So to satisfy justice and to satisfy love, I'm not sure if Richard or Yako talked about this a few weeks ago or months ago, I don't know, but to satisfy both justice and love, God substituted his son to die in our place. Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. He came to give his life as a ransom to rescue sinners like you and me from hell. This is the center this is the core of the Christian faith. And the center of God's prophetic message in Isaiah 40 
1 and 2. God sent his son to provide a substitute for all who would be saved from sin. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of faith and in obedience to God, and he died totally undeserved, you know, crucified. So therefore, therefore, all of us who are saved, if you are here today, and you can say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am not ashamed of the gospel, if that's you today. You and I have been saved from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God, we're saved from our sin because it was laid upon the Savior and his righteousness has been credited to us. So let me ask you a question. Are you amazed at the grace of God in your life? We cannot become numb to the great message of comfort that started in the Old Testament and has reached us right here and today in the New Testament and beyond, and we will continue to bear fruit that will last for eternity. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The center and heart of Christianity is to cry in the message of Isaiah, which is summed up in the meaning of his name. Yahweh is salvation. So, I'm not sure where you are today. You may be going through a hard season of life. And the promises of his word are just very hard for you to reach right now. Even to the point where you just don't even know where to start. If that's you, I just want you to know that you're normal. And it's okay. And our God can handle it. And the message of comfort for you is not only salvation, but that he will meet you right where you are. And he will come for you and walk you through this. But if that's you and you just don't know how to grasp right now the promise of God, all you can do right now is just say, I just, I just need someone else to grab onto the promises and just pray for me. Listen, there's days I walk into staff meetings and during our prayer time, I just can't pray. And there's nothing greater than to hear someone else praying for you when you need it. So if that's you, elders are going to be here. Staff's going to be here. I'll be here. Let us pray for you. Or maybe you're here today and you've never have trusted in the promises of God. But something stirred through the word of God, nothing I said, but the word of God stirred your heart and you just need to talk about it. And you can't just walk out of here and keep it as knowledge and not act on it. If you feel the stir of God, I just, I ask, we're going to be here after the service. Come. We'll, we'll talk to you. We'll pray for you. Or if you're here today and you have been soaring, it's been a year of renewing of strength and the message of God that you just heard just stirred in your heart. 
the desire to go and proclaim this message of comfort to others. And you just say, like, I'm, I'm in. I just know, where do I start? If that's you, come talk to somebody, and we'll connect you with some local ministries, some global ministries. But please, let's be hearers of the word and doers of the word because it is his message for our comfort and his glory. Let's pray. God, I... Father, we confess that at times we take your grace for, for granted. And we look at grace at times by your provision of things in our life and not the provision of atonement. I'm guilty. So we come before you, we lay it at your feet, we ask for forgiveness, and we thank you that the promise of today covers our sin. But I want to be doers. We want to be doers of what we're hearing. So race of your people to cry out to those in exile, in rebellion, in warfare, and say, your God, creator, creator of who you are, loves you and wants to comfort you and wants to save you from yourself, wants to show you that no matter what you've done, there is forgiveness available through the cross of Jesus Christ. Race up your people to go across the street, in their homes, in their schools, in their neighborhoods, right here, right here. But God, your message never stopped with Israel. It crossed the pond and it reached us. So may we proclaim here and there across to the ends of the earth. Help us to do that well. Thank you for loving us. Undeserved love. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, the comforter, Jesus Christ.